Hi, Nick. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the A-Level Politics show. I've been listening to it since we did referendums in year 12. The episodes always have relevant and up-to-date AO1 laid out in a clear and effective essay structure. The otherwise impenetrable ideologies are made clear and simple in your hands. And I've been telling all my friends and all my teachers about you, and they found the podcast incredibly useful. On results day, I ended up getting the grades I needed to do history and politics at the university I've always wanted to go to. So I just wanted to say thank you so much and keep it up. What a lovely message that was, and I really appreciate it. And fear not, I will continue with this show. Hello and welcome back to it. I hope you've had a lovely summer and are excited, especially if you are a new lower sixth student, to commence what I think is the best A-level subject in the world, politics. And if you are a returning upper sixth student, you already know this, of course, but I hope that you are as excited to continue on your learning journey. And for everyone else, teachers, listeners, world leaders, thank you for turning in. Today, we will focus on direct democracy, but won't repeat the exact question of the episode that I did previously on this, where we just compared representative and direct democracy. Instead, we will look at the different types of direct democracy. We will go into the weeds um, and we will focus specifically on direct democracy used in the UK and ask ourselves, which one is best? The question is this, Evaluate the view that referendums are the best form of direct democracy currently in operation in the UK. Let me repeat that. Evaluate the view that referendums are the best form of direct democracy currently in operation in the UK. Now, this is a question that I think is very hard, but some students might think is easy. If you think it's easy, then you're not going to do very well. Many students may only write about referendums in the first instance, and you'd be wrong to do so. This question is asking you whether referendums are the best form of direct democracy. And remember, it's only about direct democracy. It's not asking you to compare it to representative democracy. Um, and it's specific to the UK. It's about the current methods of direct democracy in operation. So the ones that are used at the moment, not potential forms of direct democracy or forms that are used elsewhere like in the US. So you need to examine the different forms of direct democracy used in the UK right now, right here, and compare their merits with each other. I'm going to speak about three forms of direct democracy. One being referendums, of course, because that's in the question. You can't ignore that. But I'm also going to cover e-petitions and recall petitions. I'll define them all first and then get going with it. My direction is that no, referendums are not the best form of direct democracy. In my view, they are the worst form of direct democracy. And in fact, neither are e-petitions particularly good. For me, recall petitions, and we'll go through what those are in a sec, especially the way they are starting to work in the UK, hold the best prospect for direct democracy. We will firstly bring up speed though on all of the definitions associated with this topic so that you can write with confidence. Over to Definition Corner. We'll start with what is direct democracy? It's a form of democracy where citizens are involved in decision making rather than choosing representatives to take decisions on their behalf. In modern times, we closely associate 
direct democracy with referendums. Now, what are referendums? They are public votes on matters of political importance. Voters are often given a choice between two options. It is often binary between a yes or a no answer, or in the case of the referendum on EU membership in 2016, remaining or leaving. Decisions are considered binding even if they are not necessarily legally so. But there are other forms of direct democracy that may well involve representatives at certain stages, i.e. they are not pure direct democracy, but these methods have certain elements of direct democracy within them, i.e. they have citizens participating in the decision at some stage. So we have e-petitions where the public themselves raise a concern and encourage other members of the public to sign the petition. These petitions uh, are often calling for specific governmental actions or for specific issues to be raised in Parliament. Once 100,000 people have signed the petition on the Parliament's petitions website, it can be brought forward for debate in the House of Commons. However, and this is where elements of direct democracy and representative democracy collide, it is for elected representatives for parliamentarians to decide whether something will in fact be debated. Finally, we have recall elections, brought about in the wake of the expenses scandal more than a decade ago and confirmed into law via the Recall Act 2015. Again, there are processes uh, which have elements of direct democracy and elements of representative democracy, since politicians themselves, via the Speaker of the House of Commons and an eventual vote by MPs, have uh, the power uh, to confirm first that an MP will be suspended suspended from Parliament for over 10 days. If a Parliament uh, does decide to, to suspend an MP uh, for 10 days, um, usually the result of either criminal wrongdoing or exhibiting behaviour unbecoming of an MP, then we have the direct democracy element that comes into play. And that bit involves the public deciding on what to do next, whether the MP should be sacked. And that, that basically means recalled, or a recall basically means, yes, we want to sack uh, an MP. So if 10% of voters in a constituency sign a recall petition, then a by-election is triggered and the MP is effectively sacked before their term is up. Now, that's not all you need to know about what recalls involve, and I will go through those again. Uh, and indeed, e-petitions and referendums have more bits to them that we need to discuss. But rest assured that this will all come out in the wash when we drill down on the benefits and drawbacks of each form of direct democracy. And we'll start with referendums. Now, as I would encourage you to do with all essays um, and all paragraphs in especially 30 mark questions, um, is to uh, consider the weaker arguments first and then halfway down your paragraph, trash that and then move on to what you think the stronger argument is. So I'm going to start with my weaker argument about referendums. And when I mean weaker argument, I mean this argument I'm introducing, I think, is, is a weak one. And that is that referendums are good. Um, and let's start with a few um, reasons for why people think they're good. Everyone gets a say in the decision. The referendum on whether to leave the EU was one of the greatest democratic exercises in British political history by some accounts. 33 million people voted. You could argue also that referendums give equal vote, equal weight, that should say, equal weight to all votes. Unlike representative democracy, where because of first past the post, some voters live in safe seats that politicians simply ignore. 
In national referendums, all votes are counted and the side with the most votes wins. So your vote does matter more. In the EU referendum, 52% of voters opted to leave. So that close result showed that every vote actually counted. You could argue that referendums encourage popular participation. Turnout for important referendums often exceeds those of general elections for um, electing parliament. The Scottish Independence referendum in 2014 had an 85% turnout, whereas turnout for the 2019 general election was just 67%. You could also make the point that referendums develop a sense of community and responsibility and of community repair. The Good Friday referendum in Northern Ireland paved the way for Catholics and Protestants to share power in a province that had been divided by sectarian conflicts for centuries and that referendums encourage genuine debate. The Electoral Reform Society found that the Scottish independence referendum was conducted in an open and honest way with reasoned arguments. I'm now going to trash these arguments. Let's start with the idea that it can unite communities. Is Northern Ireland really that much more united? I mean, it doesn't even have a, have a functioning government at the moment, um, even after uh, the um, referendum on Good Friday and power sharing. In fact, I think referendums divide communities. The EU referendum exposed and deepened divides between regions. Scotland voted to remain while England voted to leave. Between age groups, only 27% of 18 to 24 year olds voted to leave the EU compared to 60% of people aged 65 plus. And uh, some accounts show that uh, a good few million people over 65 have died since that referendum, meaning that if we were to rerun that referendum today, just by demographics alone, the result would be different. And also that referendum particularly exposed class divisions. A majority of poorer working class voters opted to leave the EU, while a majority of better off middle classes chose to remain in the EU. Now, you might say, well, those divides exist anyway. Uh, my argument um, in addressing that is, well, why exacerbate them? Um, and referendums tend to do that. My biggest problem with referendums comes from uh, this idea that John Stuart Mill had that referendums lead to a tyranny of the majority. The minority is often ignored and intimidated. In a referendum, the minority always loses rather than being catered for through compromise that we see through representative democracy. A majority of voters in England voted for Brexit, while a majority of voters in Scotland voted to remain. But there are more voters in England than Scotland. So Scotland lost. As the Leave side won, Scotland, as part of the UK, was forced to leave the EU against its will. In terms of intimidation, the number of anti-immigrant attacks increased during and immediately after the EU referendum. A Polish community centre in Hammersmith was defaced by swastikas. Then we move on to um, the impact that referendums have had on representative and political institutions. Decisions made by people in referendums are often at odds with the preferences of their elected representatives, causing political instability. This is something that ancient Greek philosopher Plato feared. The UK's political stability has been severely compromised by the Brexit referendum. Two prime ministers resigned over the issue. The opposition party almost broke in half following uh, the 2017 election as well. No party commanded a majority in that. 2017 election was largely called as a result of the Brexit stalemate, but no party commanded a majority after that um, uh, for uh, two and a half years. So that instability really uh, had a big impact and it's had a knock-on effect on our economy uh, as, as well as fewer businesses want to invest in the UK following the political instability. 
There's also a lack of accountability that referendums uh, bring about. It's impossible to hold a whole voting population to account if a decision turns out to have unforeseen consequences. Uh, we, we don't really see many benefits of Brexit, even if you voted or would have voted uh, to leave. Very few people can see the, the economic benefits. Uh, um, people can't feel those benefits at the moment if they indeed they do exist. But who are you going to chuck out? Are you going to chuck out the politicians who would argue they simply follow the instruction given by uh, the British people? You can't sack us all. Um, and that's the problem of referendums uh, as opposed to representative democracy, where you can uh, throw the buggers out. You can't throw uh, out millions of voters, can you, uh, and sack them from a job that they don't even have. Um, I would argue as well that um, referendums often pose questions to voters that are just too complex. The issue of EU membership was indeed too complex for most voters. Many who cast a ballot went into the voting booths with widely different ideas of uh, how much the UK paid into the EU budget, uh, what kinds of arrangements could result from EU withdrawal, uh, what the customs union was and what the single market entailed. And a lot of the focus uh, on uh, in that referendum was on um, fishermen uh, and the fishing industry um, and how it might benefit post-Brexit. Uh, and the music industry was completely ignored. And yet the music industry has suffered a lot due to Brexit, due to visa requirements for travelling musicians and so on. And yet that wasn't even an issue that was raised during the referendum debate. People wouldn't have voted on that sort of thing. And so uh, I think that's an example of where issues are often just too complex for ordinary voters to understand. I'm not saying that people are dumb. I'm saying that these issues are complex and therefore should be left to people with real knowledge of the matter. So, um, yes, um, referendums, I think, are very, very harmful. They're certainly not the best form of direct democracy. And that's why we need to look at the alternative forms of direct democracy, because that's what the question requires. So next, we will look at e-petitions. So e-petitions. Now, people continue to sign e-petitions as a means of putting pressure on the government. They are easy to use and to set up. Only five people's signatures are needed to trigger one. Most of you listening probably have signed an e-petition in your life. So they are very easy uh, to access and, and to engage with. Between 2015 to 2020, the House of Commons Library reported that 23 million people signed an e-petition on its website. Many more signed e-petitions on other websites, including 38 Degrees. Now, you could argue that e-petitions provide a link between direct democracy and representative democracy. Petitions with over 100,000 signatures will be considered for debate in Parliament. These actions can be the first step in a process to change the law. So, if you like, citizens are involved at the early stages through e-petitions, but then representatives take over. The end period poverty campaign began with an e-petition to scrap the tampon tax and resulted in the scrapping of VAT on sanitary products. This resulting momentum has led to calls for going further and ending VAT on period pants. Now, this is a case study of where pressure from ordinary citizens had a direct impact on shaping and ultimately changing a decision and may well have an impact going further down the line. Yet, Many e-petitions aren't debated at all in Parliament, which could put people off from signing them. I know quite a lot of times I get e-petitions 
e-petition requests and sometimes I just ignore them um, because there are so many of them and because I don't necessarily think that they're going to go anywhere. Of the 8,154 e-petitions launched on Parliament's uh, petition website between 2017 to 2019, only 456 received a governmental response. If people feel that an action they take won't amount to much, uh, like me, they won't necessarily continue to take a similar action in the future. There is also the question of how engaged people are after signing the petition. Many petitions are created for spurious reasons. Uh, white chocolate cream eggs, a ban on the computer game Fortnite, and a peerage for Danny Dyer were among the thousands of rejected petitions to Parliament in 2018. Thus, I think it's safer to say that only specific e-petitions may raise important issues and have a chance of grabbing the intention of lawmakers, but most are simply ignored and the whole process is too dependent on elected politicians and in reality the governing party to give ordinary citizens real influence on decision making. Thus, referendums can have really harmful effects on democracy more broadly, but e-petitions barely have any effects, positive or negative at all. Enter recall petitions, which are very different and I think better than the other two. So the recall of MPs Act 2015 brought in this right to sack an MP before an election is due. So if an MP is convicted of a criminal offence, or if they produce false expenses claims, or if they are suspended from the House of Commons for over 10 days, then the Speaker, and by extension the House of Commons through a vote, uh, can recommend a recall petition. To go forward, 10% of registered voters in the MP's constituencies, uh, constituency has to sign a recall petition. There is then a by-election whereby voters decide upon a new MP. So the kind of direct democracy element of this works in the middle. Parliament, through representatives, through representative democracy, decide whether there are grounds for an e-petition, whether there are grounds for involving the public. The public are then involved in this recall petition. Um, and then it goes to a by-election, which is really voting for a representative. So it, it, it forms part of representative democracy. It really is a mix between representative and direct uh, democracy. What are the, the problems? I'm going to start with the problems with the Recall Act, partly because I think that the Recall Act is a very good thing and therefore I will end my paragraph with the positives. Let's start with the negatives and then trash these negatives. The Recall MP, the recalled MP, the disgraced MP, the MP that's fiddled their expenses or travelled on a train when they, they've had COVID, um, can still stand in the by-election once the recall petition uh, has surpassed uh, the required number of signatures. Disgraced Conservative MP Chris Davies stood in the Brecon and Radenshaw by-election in August 2019, despite being recalled after falsifying, falsifying his expense claims. While the Liberal Democrats actually won that particular by-election, Davies was a Conservative, he did come within a whisker of holding on to it and was completely free to stand again in any forthcoming general election. Indeed, his wife did stand, I think, and won that seat. Parliament has to approve whether a petition is held. Do Turkey's vote for Christmas? The decision on what to do with disgraced MPs uh, has been hijacked by considerations of party politics, partisanship, if you will. For instance, despite his involvement in a lobbying scandal in November 2021, Owen Paterson MP was initially supported by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who whipped his MPs to prevent further sanctions. Boris Johnson himself 
held on to his job as an MP for a good year after allegations that he lied to Parliament over Partygate and sought to undermine the investigation uh, into him by the Privileges Committee during that time. While he did eventually resign, he jumped before he was pushed and never had to face the suspension from the House of Commons or a recall petition. It was not before members of the committee faced threats from the public, largely as a result of the storm that Johnson and his followers whipped up in the media. In this instance, we can see that recall petitions have not reversed the lack of accountability of politicians, nor have they changed the pernicious entitlement culture uh, that some or many uh, politicians uh, have. The recent long goodbye from Nadine Doris, who said she would resign owing to a failure to receive a peerage, poor her, saw her cling on to her job for over 100 days after her announcement. Her constituents were powerless to speed up her formal quitting of her job, even though she had not attended the House of Commons for over a year. This example again shows that criteria for recall perhaps needs to be extended. They also simply might fail. Despite his suspension from Parliament over his failure to declare hospitality received from the Sri Lankan government, Ian Paisley Jr. did not have to face a by-election in his South Antrim constituency because the recall petition failed to garner enough signatures. This example shows that the Recall Act does not necessarily punish corruption. Of course, there is the argument that these politicians uh, give that have uh, the potential that, that these recall petitions have the potential to undermine the will of the people at the previous election. The idea that uh, they were voted in um, and therefore uh, they have their term and then can be voted out again and the recall election uh, is unfair because it uh, gets in the way of that understanding. Now I don't place much stall in that since well it's the same set of voters that these disgraced individuals have to face again albeit just uh, in a speeded up form. Indeed despite the shortcomings of recall elections I would argue that they are far preferable than either referendums uh, or e-petitions. Let's Think about these positives. The Act, the Recall Act, strikes the right balance between punishing illegality and wrongdoing whilst making it sufficiently difficult to remove an MP for simply speaking their mind. Nothing in the Recall Act uh, allows a recall uh, if an MP says something controversial. Therefore, it respects the views of the electorate, the previous election, and it respects freedom of speech. Labour MP Fiona Onasanya lost her seat after the Speaker agreed to trigger a recall petition in March 2019 following the rejection of her, of her appeal against her conviction for perverting the course of justice. In 2023, Margaret Ferrier, a former SNP MP, was suspended from Parliament for 30 days after breaking COVID restrictions. She took part in a Commons debate while awaiting a COVID test result in 2020, and then after receiving a positive result, decided to travel home by train. Yes. The subsequent recall petition uh, that the suspension triggered saw 15% of the 81,000 eligible constituents signing a petition to remove her, passing the 10% threshold, which triggers a by-election. A by-election to elect a new MP uh, for her Rother Glen and Hamilton West seat was thus triggered, and at the time of recording, we are still awaiting for that to be held. To, to be held. I think it will take place in October 2023. This last example shows that constituents value the chance to hold their elected representatives accountable. Ferrier's and Onasanya's actions were pretty serious and morally highly dubious. Without recall, there would have been no way to prevent them from remaining as MPs, at least not until the next general election. 
If direct democracy is to work, it must uphold a key tenet of democracy more broadly, that is, holding those in power to account. I don't think referendums do this, as it's hard to blame a government for a decision that the people themselves have made, i.e. on Brexit. E-petitions are relatively toothless, but recall elections can, in certain circumstances, really confirm to politicians that we are their bosses. Should they be used more widely, i.e. should Parliament elected MPs be the ones who get to decide if their colleagues should face a recall? Hmm, perhaps. Uh, but perhaps MPs ought to be legally bound to accept the outcome of the various standards committees, or in the case of Johnson, the privileges committees. Too much is reliant on the so-called good chaps theory of government. We Really, you know, we've had these recalls because politicians have gone along with them. Let's beef up the procedures so that politicians have no choice but to accept a recall if an independent committee um, decides that one should be held. But yeah, let's mend it and let's not end it. Thus, in my view, referendums are by no means the best form of direct democracy because they divide communities. They don't contribute to meaningful discourse. They hinder rather than promote accountability. They undermine political stability and are also a license maker for extremists. Let's not forget that an MP, Joe Cox, was murdered by a far right man in her constituency surgery just weeks out from that referendum. E-petitions aren't the answer though, not in their current form. They can allow important issues to be raised, yes, and allow the public to demonstrate their feeling, their sentiment on issues but they lack teeth. There are very few examples of e-petitions affecting public policy. Recall elections, meanwhile, are far better than the other two. They can hold MPs accountable for wrongdoing, even if they haven't yet encouraged good behaviour more broadly. To do that, I think we need a complete cultural change at Westminster. We need a different electoral system, I think. And we need more things written into law governing MPs' behaviour rather than relying on them just behaving well um, because of a culture that exists, which I don't think can exist unless it is written down and the rules are clear. Can you see what I've done here? I've told you what I think and why I think it. That's my best advice to you and I will model it in these podcasts that you listen to. Make sure you use persuasive language in your essays and also that you read the question carefully. This question was never about referendums solely and it is comparative in nature. So at regular points in this podcast, I've compared referendums to the other forms of direct democracy being discussed, e-petitions and recall uh, petitions. You need to make sure you do the same throughout your essays, usually at the end of each paragraph. That's it from me today. I hope you found this podcast useful. If you did, then why not subscribe to Plus 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 for £1.99, get two bonus pods and the full back catalogue more than 120 episodes of the A-Level Politics goodness. Don't forget to leave a nice review also wherever you listen to your pods so that more people can find out about us and enjoy the first few weeks back to school. That might be a bit harder to do, I understand. Um, but I think if you're taking politics, you'll be happy. Take care, peeks. Peeks? Take care, peeps. Till the next time. Goodbye.